Let's pray. Lord, we uh, come this morning, and as we turn to this portion of your word, God, once again we come with many different thoughts, hearts, maybe, maybe many different things in our minds, but in the midst of it all, Lord, still we have a lot of ourselves, a lot of what we want to do, a lot of what we want to achieve, and our selfishness, our self-centeredness take large part of our hearts, and we are filled with selfishness in many ways. And so, Lord, we come before you in need of your word and of your truth to correct us, to change the way we think, change the way we behave. And so, Lord, as we come to this word that you will speak to us, God, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> today, uh, the title of my message is The Self-Giving Love. The Self-Giving Love. You know, when we, uh, so as we just read, when we come to a passage like this, we cannot help but kind of feel overwhelmed because of this impossibly lofty demands that we see. And already Jesus listed before the deeper demand of the law concerning the anger, the murder, right, the lust, marriage, taking oaths, and all these things. And as if those things that the Jesus talked about in the uh, previous verses weren't enough, Jesus explains to the audience yet another, another like widely misunderstood command. We are all familiar with this uh, command, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We all know that. Or we have heard of it. And also Jesus has turned the other cheek, right? Uh, <coughs> and go extra mile for someone who forces you to go one mile, right? Against your will. Love your enemies. Wow, these are like really hard. It's just basically impossible demands that Jesus tells us. So whenever we come to a passage like this, I don't know about you, but I feel overwhelmed. How can I ever possibly meet these demands of the law, right? Love your enemies. Are you kidding me? We even have a hard time loving our own family, loving our own spouse, our co-workers, let alone enemies. So, you know, last night uh, we had uh, the, the married couples, we had a fellowship, and uh, the, the, the game that we played, uh, it's called uh, Spouseology. It's basically a Christian version of newlyweds, you know, like how you ask a question, and the husband and wife have to, like, answer separately, but, and, and then make sure that they have the right answer. So, you know, like, we had good laugh, and, you know, but, you know, like, um, I'm not going to say who, but this one couple, it just stood out to me that, uh, you know, if you were to you know, compare your husband to what uh, superhero, right, and both of them just went off script, meaning there were no, like, we were given, like, four different, like, choices, but they decided to take a risk and then talk about a certain superhero, and then both of them actually got it right, Hulk, right? And I was just, it was just, it stood out, and, you know, so, but it was, it was funny, and, you know, and also I had my share of embarrassment because uh, one of the questions was, um, you know, if you were to, uh, you know, concerning your, the question was something like, you know, concerning your husband, you know, comparing to a car, where is his memory at, right? And uh, the first uh, example, a, uh, the, the a, answer A was firing on all cylinders. As soon as I heard it, that's me. That's me right there, right? 
But you know, obviously, we had to answer separately. And then the, the third one was um, uh, that if he were, uh, my husband were a car, he needs jump start, right? Um, not even close, right? I was so confident that, that you know, my wife and I, we were going to be on the same page, and I said it with pride. Like, yeah, I'm firing on all cylinders. I have pretty good you know, memory retention and all these things. But I was like way off. She said, no, you, you, you need like jump start, right, on your memory thing. And I was like, and in the back of my mind, we're going to have a talk tonight, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's unacceptable that this happened. It was such an embarrassing moment in front of everybody. And most of the couples, they were like slightly off, but like we were like far, far way off, right? Uh, and um, so, and then soon enough, obviously, like there was another question about like when was the last time you guys held your hands and they're like I didn't even forget you know I forgot that, that we held hands like you know last the past week and then so I was wrong again and so you know okay I couldn't say anything about my memory because I didn't really memorize well and so the, the thing is um you know so but in the interactions you know like it was good fun but at the same time I'm sure some of us must have just gone home and kind of had a little talk right <laughs> haven't you guys I mean we did um but see like so Oftentimes, we have a hard time loving our own spouse. And yet, Jesus is saying, that's what you have heard, right? Uh, love your neighbor, but you know, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Impossible. How can we ever, right? If this is a standard, how can we ever love? How can we ever live up to this kind of God's standard? You know, when Jesus tells us the meaning of God's law, the purpose is not only to explain the deeper and true meaning of God's law, but also it is to clarify uh, and clarify the original intent. But it also, <clears throat> God, Jesus gives us the true meaning of these laws to demonstrate how awfully inadequate we are and how impossible it is for us to obey God on our own strength, on our own power. You know, we are so inclined to think whenever when the God's word is given to us, we are so inclined to think, oh, I can do that. I can do that on my own. But whenever we hear God's word, oftentimes, I'm going to make it happen. Right? And our sinful nature keeps declaring our independence from God as if, say, hey, I can do this. Yeah, when God says it, I think I can. If I try hard enough, I can make it happen. So we keep declaring our independence from God and say that I can do it with my willpower, a little bit of a little more concerted efforts that I have, I can do this right, with my own strength. But unless we truly understand the gospel, we'll keep clinging to this world's salvation theology. That God will love me, God will accept me based on what I have done. Right? Based <clears throat> based on my good works and what I have done, what I have accomplished. You know, the self-righteousness, really in essence, is declaring to God and saying, God, look what I have done. Look what I have accomplished. So isn't this what I have accomplished, what I have done in your name? Isn't this good enough? This is my righteousness before you. And that's what self-righteousness is really about, is to really exalt and just emphasize our achievement. What, I have done, what we have done, 
and say, God, here's my righteousness. Now I am good enough for you to really love me because of my, what, what I have done. It's all about my, what I have done, my work. Right? But Jesus here exposes our self-salvation fallacy and our self-righteousness by revealing God's absolute standard. Even though we may have heard about do not murder. Oh, so as long as I don't really kill anybody, right, then I've kept the law. Whereas what Jesus is really talking about is to, as Pastor Jay said, is we, if we are guilty of dehumanizing another person, right, making them uh, as objects, right, just for our own end, that we have already committed, uh, we have not obeyed the law. So the absolute standard that God has, right, it reveals through the teaching of Jesus Christ. So what, <clears throat> what Jesus is really getting at here is this radical nature of God, the nature of God's standard, and His demand is absolute and pure. It is so high, impossibly high, for any one of us to truly meet on our own. Right? It really crushes any hope that we have for us to meet those demands on our own. God's law was given so that, on one hand, to know what is really right because, because of our depraved mind. We don't even know what is right and what is wrong. So that is one reason why God's law is given and explained. But also, the, another reason and the purpose is also to real, make us realize of our need for grace. Because we come to passages like this, all these demands that Jesus explains, the God's law, the true intent behind it. And we say, we just throw our hands up in the air and say, how can we ever meet those things? It's impossible. Right? So it drives us on our bended needs and says, God, I need your mercy because I cannot make it. There's no way I can meet all your standard. It's so absolute. It is so high. I need your grace. So the law of God was given so that we may come to the realization because without it, we'll constantly uh, tell ourselves that we can do it. I can make it happen. I can obey God on my own strength. With our sinfulness, meeting God's standard is futile. And yet, we keep clinging to these legalistic tendencies. As long as I just keep the letters of the law, then I should be fine, that I'm really obeying God. And the Pharisees were the champions of legalism, right? Focusing on keeping the letter of the law without seeking God's true purpose behind it. And here, Jesus, more than anything, addresses our natural tendency concerning taking revenge on somebody else and about our selfishness. And these are big things, that we really struggle with all the time, do we not? Selfishness, really loving ourselves, caring for ourselves at the expense of somebody else. And to overcome these tendencies, really what is needed is a deeper understanding of the gospel. Because only through the gospel can we understand the true, what true love really is. Because the only way we can really combat our natural tendencies to be selfish is to really understand what true love is and deal with these issues of vengeance and selfishness. The gospel points 
to the love of God through Christ Jesus. It is the gospel love that we have to really come to a deeper understanding of. That is the only way that we can truly work with and just kind of deal with and just get a cut these uh, tendencies that we have about our selfishness. You know, this world tells us, right, that love is this undeniable attraction between people. They tell, the world tells us love is this chemistry with lots of fireworks. So people get married. People fall in, fall in love, right? But once these feelings are gone, then all deals are off. And then we say, okay, forget it. You know, I don't love you anymore. You don't love me. Because of our irreconcilable differences, now we're going to get divorced. We don't love each other really, right? The worldly love, in essence, is self-serving. It is self-serving. It's really love to them is about what the other person can do for you, how that person can make you feel, right? Oh, I feel really validated. I feel uh, accepted, right? How he or she can, uh, you know, how much like security that person can really provide for you. This is what I want. This is what I crave. And once that person really meets that, oh, then I love that person based on what that person can do for me. So it's very self-serving. However, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that true love, the biblical love, is self-giving, not self-serving. Right. And that is the fundamental difference between the love of the world and the love of God. The love of this world is self-serving in the end, whereas the love of God, the gospel love, is self-giving. So here Jesus tells us what this gospel love this selfless, self-giving love really entails. And so the first point um, that he brings out, I have two points. First point is the self-giving love is long-suffering. The self-giving love is long-suffering. You know, there's a saying that goes, hey, don't get mad, get even, right? That, that we have heard that uh, phrase many times. And when people hurt us, what is our initial reaction? It is to get even. I'm not going to get mad. I'm just going to get even with you. Oh, no, you won't. Right? But here, Jesus takes our breath away with this incredible teaching that you've heard is said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Right? But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, then turn to him the other also. And, goes, uh, and, he keeps, and he talks about a few other things. So Jesus here debunks the widely accepted teaching on retaliation. <clears throat> Instead of really keeping score, love and forgive the other person. He's declaring that two wrongs do not make a right that revenge is really poison. You know, eye for an eye, it really, it may kind of sound severe to us, but the original intent of Leviticus 24, verses 19 and 20, maybe we can just turn to that one. It says, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, 
tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given to him. Right? So people, took, uh, the, the teachers, they took this law and then explained an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Right? But the original intent of these verses is that punishment should be equitable. The puni punishment, the original intent is that the punish punishment should fit the crime. That was the original intent. And these verses should be understood in the context, on the, in the court of law. Right? We're talking about in the, in, in the court setting, legally. Right? It's never meant to be about like, uh, you know, just among these two people on their own. It was in the context of the, in the court of law. It prevented offended people from taking the law into their own hands and seeking personal revenge against the offender. It served in the court as a safeguard and a guideline against the human tendency to escalate personal vendettas. Right? I mean, when we, when we, if we are really honest with ourselves, when we are wronged, don't we, do we not exact greater vengeance? So often, when somebody does something wrong to you, you're like, oh, oh yeah, I'm going to get back at you. But then because of the anger and the rage that we feel, we kind of just one up on the other person. You know, I, sometimes from time to time, I uh, hear news of two people in a road rage situation. Don't know exactly what happens, but it escalates. One person does this, or, that, or this, 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 leading to shooting deaths. I mean, think about it. Being on the road, maybe somebody cut you off or driving too slow, something happened. But does that really, deserve, I mean, does that, should that really lead to shooting and killing the other person? Starting from simple scuffle, right? But that's the human nature. What we do is like, we're going uh, to get even, but the, when we say we are getting evil, we add something more to that. So that you take that. And then a person says, oh, yeah, all right, I'm going to do this, do this. And it just escalates. And that's our human nature. And because of that, just to prevent all those things, the law was given so that it will be, the punishment should be equitable. You should not go overboard in your vengeance. So this is one thing in the court of law, right, in a legal, legal sense. And yet, based on these verses, people were taught that you could take it out on the people, take it out on the offender on your own, and you just can't get, get even. Do it. Right. And Jesus exposes those who conveniently justify the personal vengeance and retaliation from this Old Testament law. And he goes above and beyond what the Old Testament law states. Because verse 39, it says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the other cheek, Turn to him, the other also. Jesus calls for this unselfish and long-suffering attitude, which not only refuses to retaliate, but, to really, but also to just not resisting, even when it would be legally right to do so. Right? You know, when you look at this passage in the bigger context, this attitude is implicit in the Beatitudes that we have been looking at, right? How could the meek, how could 
the merciful? How could the peacemaker, how could be the one who is persecuted for the righteousness, really strike back at their opponent? If you really just hear from what Jesus is telling about the Beatitudes, what would be our attitude? How can we, if we are called to be merciful, called to be peacemakers, we are, if we are called to suffer for the righteousness' sake, how can we really strike back at our opponents? Jesus says, do not resist the one who is, who is evil. But then it can be a little baffling because what does that really mean? What does Jesus mean by that? Is Jesus saying that we should just sit back and watch an evil person go do whatever he wants? What does he mean by this? Do not resist the, 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 the person who is evil. If you take this verse out of uh, its context, then it seems like that's what Jesus is saying. Do not resist an evil person. So then we just kind of, okay, hands off, and you do, you do you, right? And just you do whatever you want. Is that what Jesus is saying? But no, because you have to understand that this is in the context on the court of law. Right? So it really means when Jesus says, do not resist the evil person, it means do not oppose him in court. Right? Or do not seek restitution in court. Meaning, so in other words, do not take him, him or her to court, even though you may have the legal right to do so. Do not resist him in that. Do not seek restitution. Oh, yeah, you did that? I'm going to just take you to court. I'm going to make sure that you're going to pay for this. Jesus says, do not do that. Instead, forego your right for the sake of bearing witness to the gospel. Let it go. Once again, it's really hard for us to swallow. When somebody does something wrong to us, right, we say, oh, where's the lawyer? Where's Pastor Jay? We better call him. And then just make sure that, you know, just, I'm going to get my right. I have uh, every legal right to, do, to get back, right? Get the compensation for the wrong that's been done to me. So here, when Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, he's not saying that we become a doormat to evil people that, so that they can just stomp on us. That's not what it means. When somebody's being, saying a spouse is abused, we, and when we know about it, and I say, oh yeah, keep just doing it, just don't do anything, don't resist anything. That's not what Jesus is really saying, right? It does mean that we sit passively when evil goes unhindered. But when it comes to our personal loss and our personal suffering in private disputes, Jesus is saying, choose suffering and choose to endure it rather than getting even. The context in, is like in today's legal system, like civil case rather than the criminal case. Of course, when it is a criminal case, that is beyond you, right? Because it is really the, the crime is against the state. Crime is against the government. So that's why the district attorney would do all that thing, do all those things. But in a civil case, you know, like a judge duty, right? That's a civil case. So when you watch uh, Judge Judy, I mean, she's a scary woman. But, you know, really, and when you, you know, some, from time to time, I just watch the cases, and like, some of it's pretty petty things, right? Oh, he hit me first, so I just went and just like, scratched the key of the car and, you know, things that I want, I want, you know, just my right, right? So you have to understand, in the civil case, uh, civil cases, court cases, just let go of your legal right. So practical application, 
I don't want you, uh, I don't want to see you on judge duty, right? I'm just turning on the TV, and there's, hey, wait a minute, you, <laughs> you're my church member. You're on judge duty trying to just get something back from the offender. Please don't do that, right? That's what Jesus is saying. So it, it, in principle, what Jesus is saying is to rather endure suffering in private, uh, you know, private uh, disputes. And Jesus says, if, uh, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, right, turn, to the other, turn, to the, uh, turn to him the other also. Right? It's really an insult for somebody to slap you on the right cheek. Right? Yeah, you know, to strike the right cheek with the right hand, you don't go like this because then that's your right, left cheek, right? When Jesus says, you know, when the, somebody slaps you on the right cheek, it means that person has to slap you from the, from the backhand. It's an insult. It really doesn't, maybe it hurts a little bit, but it's more of an insult. When, when, if I were to just like come up to passage and then just slap them on the right, oh, oh, yeah, I mean, he's going to, you know, take me to court, right? Um, <laughs> So it's, it's really an insult. It was very insulting, especially during their culture. Right? It's like almost getting spit on, on, on your face. And according to Jewish law, the one who slaps another person faces face severe punishment and a heavy fine. So the law was on the side of the victim. And yet Jesus says, do not take that legal course of action. Let it go. If somebody insults you, if somebody hurts you, offends you, let it go and choose rather to suffer and endure for the sake of the gospel. Right? And then, you know, he goes on to say, if anyone, uh, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Right? The word forces is the Greek verb uh, that the, the comes from a Persian word meaning pressing into service, pressing into, forcing you to do certain, uh, to perform the service against your will. And the possibility of a Roman soldier coercing a person to burden carrier was real at the time. Any Roman uh, soldier could just, as you were doing your, minding your business, and make you and force you to take stuff, right, against your will. And this word was actually used in Matthew chapter 27, verse 32, where the Roman soldiers forces Simon, uh, Simon from Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross. When Jesus was, because of all the torture, he could not carry his own cross. So there was an onlooker, there was somebody who happened to be there named Simon from Cyrene. And so the Roman soldiers forced him, and th that word is used, forced him to carry Jesus' cross. When he does that, do it. Do not refuse. Jesus here asks his people to suffer. It's not easy for us to swallow because our instinct tells us to avoid suffering, right? And yet, true love that Jesus calls for does not retaliate. Our self-serving nature screams to get even with the one who hurts us. But the true love, the self-giving love, is long-suffering. We are called to endure suffering rather than inflict suffering on the other people. And that is the kind of love that did Jesus not only give a, taught, uh, uh, teach us, but he also lived it in his own life. 
in the suffering servant passage, in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, it says this, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. As he was describing, as the suffering servant, suffering servant that Isaiah describes, the Messiah, who would just bear the burden and the, uh, uh, and the sin of the world, this is how it's described. And this is exactly what Jesus has done for us as he was being tried without any crime whatsoever. Simply just by telling the truth of who he was, he was accused. And instead of really saying, oh, I have my legal right, this is, uh, this is my defense, I'm going to just get the, the, the best you know, lawyer in town, Pastor Jay, and then I'm just going to defend myself. He could have had every reason to defend himself and say, this is not right, this is injustice. And yet, he has chosen to go through that injustice. He has chosen to face death without any penalty, uh, without, uh, uh, without defending himself. He was like a lamb being led to slaughter. And he tells us to do likewise. He calls us to follow the way of the cross instead of the way of personal rights. We must entrust ourselves to God who will one day set all things right. I remember this past Friday in, in a prayer meeting as we were just talking about certain things about justice and things like this. We talked about how in the end, what God calls us to do is to trust Him that He'll one day make all things right. Yes, there are so many injustices in the world. I mean, you look at all the, the what's going on in the world. So many things that are just wrong. And it have, we may have every, every legal right and personal right to stand up against and just go against it. But in the end, God calls us to trust Him. Do not take vengeance, revenge on our own, but leave it up to God. We trust Him and be willing to endure hardship and suffering for His name for his name's sake. And you have to really understand the force of what Jesus was saying here, given the circumstances, because at that time, because they were under Roman oppression, so there's not, it's a, and the, 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 the expectation of the Jewish people at the time, of the Messiah, was this military leader, somebody who is powerful, somebody who is going to come and crush these pagans, right, and just restore the former glory and reestablish the kingdom of God in Jerusalem. So their idea of Messiah, the leader, was this military, powerful general. And yet Jesus comes along and says, Hey, if somebody insults you, just backhandedly with the right cheek, turn to the other, turn to your left cheek, so that person can just strike you again. Do not resist and do not, even though you may have every legal right to do so, choose suffering. Do not resist People at the time, the Jewish the original audience, it was really offensive, offensive to them. They couldn't really accept it. And yet, that is the way of the cross that Jesus tells us. And the second thing, second point that Jesus brings out here is the self-giving love is costly. The self-giving love here 
is costly, and that is the only way that we can really overcome our selfish selfishness. Jesus does not simply stop at non-resistance concerning personal injustices, but advocates sacrificial love. It's not just simply just stopping and not just pressing and then just trying to just get your right, right? Self-giving love involves sacrifice, and therefore, it is costly. You know, verse 43 says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right? And it re- refers to Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But this law, and anywhere else in the, all of Scripture, there's ever, there's a command to hate your enemies. Love your neighbors, right? In other words, it was a false conclusion by the scribes drawn from this narrow understanding of neighbor. Because to them, the neighbor, who, was my, who is my neighbor then? It is your fellow Jew, right? That's how they term, they define your neighbor, all the Gentiles, they're enemies. They're not my neighbors, meaning they're enemies. They're not my neighbor, right? And, but Jesus shows that the true intent of uh, this passage extends even to one's enemies because the law said, and the teacher said, oh, love your enemies. So you only love your own fellow Jew, Jewish brothers and sisters. And that's it. Outside of that, Romans, uh, Gentiles, pagans, you are taught you know, basically, you can't, you should, you know, hate them because they don't know God, but we are the chosen people of God. So you, have, you are justified in hating them. And yet, in Luke chapter 10, in the Good Samaritan parable, Jesus flips the script and says, who was a good neighbor? It was a Samaritan that all the Jewish people despised. The highly esteemed uh, Levites or the high priests they weren't the ones who were the, being neighbor to the guy who was being half dead on the road. Here again, Jesus goes far beyond the explicit teaching of the Old Testament law and offers, offers an ethic in sharp contrast to natural human values. We gravitate toward people who we love, who we can love, right? So Jesus is saying, by loving, uh, you know, what reward is that to you if you only love the people that, that they're going to love you back, right? By loving and praying for our enemies, we prove our relationship to the Father, to our Father, because that's what God, our Father has done for us. The gospel tells us that while we are yet enemies of God, while we are still rebelling against Him, He sent His Son Jesus to us so that he may be offered as a sacrifice in our place. It cost the Father his own son, only begotten son, Jesus. And how can you put, the, put a price tag on that, right? I mean, for you parents, would you put a price tag on your child? Would you choose money 
over your child? Absolutely not, right? And yet, she, uh, God the Father, really, gave, gave His Son to us. Out of His love for us, the rebellious ones, He sacrificed His own Son, the only Son. No sacrifice that we claim to make for God will ever come close to the price that God has paid, God had to pay for our sins. Think about what the Father has done for us. The gospel love, the self-giving love, is costly love. It costs a lot. Right? How does God defeat evil? He overcomes evil with good. And Jesus says, do likewise. We must live by a higher standard than what this world expects or what other people are doing, right? What weird is that to you? I mean, don't the uh, tax collectors or the other people do the same thing? They're loving the people that are going to love you back or that are being good to you? But Jesus says, rise above all of the natural tendencies. Our selfishness says, I'm going to only love my neighbor, people who are being nice to me, people who are good to me, people, uh, people that I can get something from. But the people who hate me, are you kidding me? I have a hard time not just like, you know, restraining myself. How can I love these people? And yet Jesus says, that's what you are called to do. Jesus calls for self-giving love from his followers. And it is long-suffering, and it is costly. Choosing to endure suffering rather than claiming personal rights. It's costly. Jesus showed us the ultimate example by submitting to the will of the Father that cost him his own life. What is your attitude like? How do we love, how do you love other people? Is it the way of the world? Or is it the way of the cross? How do we really combat our selfishness that dominates us and that we struggle with all the time? It is by only turning to Christ and understanding the gospel in a deeper way. Then and only then that we can really do something about our uh, tendency, natural tendency. Because all this, that what Jesus is calling for, on our own, once again, it's impossible because our natural tendency is to just get even, exact the, 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 the vengeance on that person who hurt us and to really only love people that only love us back. But may we turn to Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, may we live and may we love in a self-giving way. Let's pray.